Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Coming up in the second half of the show, Amherst College's Dr. Elon Stabans on his new book, The People's Tongue, chronicling the history of American English through the centuries. We'll also talk with Merriam-Webster and NEPM's own Peter Sokolowski, who's featured in the book. Dave Hayes, the Weathernut, is on the way to see how much more of a wallop this storm has in store. Got a question for Elon Stabans or the Weathernut? You can text us. 800-639-9120. But first. You got this, Phil. We've done this oh, a, no, no, a, a no. bazillion I, times. I'm not nervous. I'm just... What, are you stressed from the drive to Springfield? Yeah, I mean, Khalees passed me. I had to find the parking lot. I went by oh. it once. Oh, yeah. And then and I... It's one-way street, so then once you go by it... It's and then like, I yeah. thought, maybe I'd do the parking meter. You know, I'm a bumpkin now. Yeah, right. Are you, like, using this? Weaving this in yet? I don't know. We're rolling. Oh, yeah, definitely then. Time for a Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the local hero, folks. Full disclosure, CISA is a supporter of New England Public Radio, but that's not why we talk to them. We talk to them because they help to gather together all of our favorite local hero farmers who are doing incredible things up and down the 91 quarter and the four counties of this here fabulous 413. And Phil Corman, who have you brought with you today? Uh, today we have Alice Coleman from Stony Hill Farm in Wilbraham. Um, I'd like to say there are thousands of farms in Wilbraham, but they're not, are there, Alice? There aren't. There are, there's a few. It's not known to be a farming community. No, it used to be. It was, um, historically, there were lots of farms, but uh, recently, more and more of them have turned into housing developments. (laughs) Yeah, and where you're farming used to be a a larger farm, and then you've sort of... uh, Yeah, it was part of a dairy farm, actually. uh Um, And then the parcel was split up. They built a house on our parcel, our part of it. Um, and there's still a horse farm next to us. Oh, that's then, an active horse farm? Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. So, so when, when we think of farms throughout the valley in the three counties, well, farmers in the three counties have a lot of challenge having farmland that is connected to each other. You just multiply that difficulty when you're in Hamden County because yeah. it has been more developed and it has faced more housing pressures. So Wilbraham traditionally was a farming community, as a lot of communities were. But Alice and Brian kind of has salvaged some farmland together to create this farm. And Brian is your partner? He is. In life and farming? Absolutely. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And you um, have uh, recently moved into this Yeah, relatively. And it wasn't a farm beforehand. What was it before? Right. So um, the person who was living there before had a huge garden, um, and he grew all sorts of stuff and actually donated most of it to, um, I think, the senior center. Uh-huh. Um, but then as he got older, he used less and less of it. So we were kind of salvaging um, some fallow fields and bringing them back. And we've got about two acres that we're growing on now. And you kind of cleared that yourself to try yeah, to make right. this farm happen. Pushed the brush back out. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like a lot of farmers, life. you also have forestry land too, right? Right. So we've got about three, let's see, two acres that we're growing on now in terms of actual crops. And then there's 30 acres of forest on the parcel as well. And I'm just kind of curious, Alice, like how, how do you and Brian decide how much you wanted to farm on and how much did you want to keep as forested land? Uh, most of it has to do with the <laughs> the areas that are dry enough to farm. A lot of the forest is actually verging on wetland Um <laughs> It just wouldn't make sense to try and put a field there. Hmm. Um, and then we use the flattest parts of the parcel, um, the least rocky parts. So <laughs> yeah. it is uh, a large mid-March winter storm that we're experiencing right now. Are you able to grow anything? Does, is this going to be bad for – as all of us are kind of like, time change has happened, it's spring, and now all of a sudden <laughs> hit with a big storm. Does that, is that going to affect the farming that you've got going right now? No, 
This won't be a problem. We um, we don't really plan on getting out into the fields until beginning of April, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we are growing in high tunnels still. So we've got, um, they're unheated greenhouses, essentially, that we're growing in the ground. They look like these giant centipede kind of things, right? <laughs> is that what I'm a, what, yeah. what a high tunnel is like? Yeah. So instead yeah. of like uh-huh. a traditional greenhouse, which makes right. people know, like a glass house and yeah. don't throw stones, but uh, these are like centipedes that are clear on the ground. Yeah. Well, they're tall. Yeah. Um, like 20 feet tall, but it's um, metal hoops with plastic yeah. stretched over them. Yeah. Wait, wait, can we do a product placement? Sure. Okay, great. Because Al- this is NPR after. Oh, right, 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 <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. Um, you brought some spinach. I nice. did, yeah. And and I couldn't resist but ask you to bring some. Yeah. Because <laughs> here we are in mid-March, and it's just amazing. And I do remember years ago, Monty, you probably did too, before we put this curse on farmers to grow through the winter. Yeah, right. There was a, Yes, it was. you would feel like maybe there'd be a winter farmer's market once every month or two, and then some people would have a few greens. But it, it felt like there was months and months where unless I was – you know, just buying conventional greens. I was not getting the greens that I need. But now, not the case because of things like high tunnels, right? Yeah, right. So we can keep growing the spinach all through the winter, um, even without heat. It's incredibly cold hardy. Talking with your mouthful is already a podcast with my <laughs> new friend Amy Traverso from Yankee Magazine host. So I don't think we can call well, it that. By. I think it's the nutrients that really cause the sound. Yeah, look at it. My muscles are getting big just like Popeye. <laughs> Um, so this was harvested like two hours ago. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Pretty fresh. Does it feel like a pressure that you have to farm through the winter to survive? And is that a pressure that we have put upon our farmers? Or is it just what farmers actually just need to do to survive? Um, I think it's a choice that you make. When we first got our high tunnels, we really did try to grow all through the winter as much as we could. And we ended up losing a certain amount of crops. Yeah. Because... Um, a lot of stuff, you know, you might be nursing it along through pretty cold nights. We put row cover um, over crops that makes the temperature a little bit warmer, so you get a little bit more frost protection. And then you'll get one cold snap, and it'll just knock out everything mm. <laughs> after, you know, weeks and weeks of work. Um, so this year, we grew pretty steadily all through the end of December. And then we sort of took a break in January and February and let Things continue to grow, but we weren't harvesting until this week. And we're starting back up again. Just spinach for now? For now, it's just spinach. And, yeah. <laughs> and you're getting ready to get into CSA season, right? So you That's have a, right. a, a community supported agriculture farm shares for people who aren't familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And that is an investment you make in your farming community or your individual farm to say, we believe in you. We're going right. to pay in advance yep. and we will reap what we reap no matter what the weather conditions are throughout the course of. The next season, right? That's right. So people sign up this time of year when we're just mostly dreaming about vegetables. Yeah. I saw on your Facebook page that you were like yep. going through the seed books and uh-huh. trying to see what yep. you're going to be planting. Yep. Looking for year. a few new varieties. Oh, um, nice. And then middle of May, the actual shares will start to get distributed. So then people will start picking up whatever's in season. And what, um, what kind of things? So our earliest stuff, we will have more spinach. Nice. Um, <laughs> of course. Works good. Yeah. We start out with um, like green garlic. You go through the whole progression of garlic plants from green garlic to garlic scapes to uh, the bulbs eventually in July. Other early crops would be, there's a whole lot of greens basically. So there's salad mix, um, lettuce, baby kale. Uh, We do pea shoots right at the beginning just to have Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, And radishes, salad turnips, which people who go to farmer's markets are probably familiar with, but... If you've just been shopping at the supermarket, you might have missed out on them. <laughs> but those are really a treat in uh, late spring. 
two things. One, one, I just, it's such a reminder when you're buying directly from a farm and you're getting a, a farm share or a CSA farm share that what we get in supermarkets often, it's just the selection of the food that's grown that can be transported 3,000 miles. So a lot of times you're not getting the green head tops uh, leafy tops to certain vegetables, which can be used in soups or eaten or s- fried up. It's it's like your diet has already been pre-selected by corporate agricultural America, you know? So I just want to warmly invite people in to, again, try something new, which is what's being grown in your neighborhood. And then the other part is lots of farms do CSA farm shares, and now is the time to be signing up for your farm shares. Because you can get locked out. You can get locked out. There are numbers out, of shares. Yeah, right. And then you knock on the door, and they say, sorry, all the shares have been sold. Mm-hmm. So that's not a happy thing. And, of course, um, CSET, BiolocalFood.org, we always have a list of what are the farms in the Valley selling CSA farm shares. Talking with Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. You may have seen their stickers on products and stores and farm stands, etc. And Alice Coleman from Stony Hill Farm on Stony Hill Road in Wilbraham. And Phil uh, tells me, Alice, that you have a sort of circuitous route to being a farmer from uh, all across the globe. Is that true? That's right. I, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, closer to Boston. And then um, after college, got a job working in Antarctica at McMurdo Station down there. What um, do you do in Antarctica for work? My job was washing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's so, got to do the dishes really in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I loved. It was awesome. <laughs> so wait, what is McMurdo Station? What, what do they um, do there? It's a whole bunch of research. So all sorts of subjects. People study penguins and um, glaciers and the rocks that are down in Antarctica. What but, is, apart from washing dishes, what is life like on, in Antarctica on a daily basis? I get so depressed until daylight savings <laughs> begins in the winter in Massachusetts. I can't imagine being in Antarctica. Well, the great thing in the summer down there is that the sun's out all the time. Yeah. It's just 24 hours of sunlight. Oh, there you go. So it might be perfect for you. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and there is a radio station, actually. Oh, cool. What do they play? <laughs> all sorts of stuff, whatever nice. people want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then from Antarctica. Yeah. So I met my now partner down there. He was working as a renewable energy specialist. So setting up um, wind turbines and solar panels for some of the field camps. And then we moved to Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, I was in grad school studying geology and he was working in the solar industry, which was really booming down there. Uh Uh-huh. They have a lot of sun out here. They do. (laughs) Antarctica, not so much, (laughs) except for that one time a year when they do, I guess. And then we moved back here when I finished grad school. I kind of wanted to be closer to family and also just to do something a little more concrete. When I was in grad school, it felt a little bit, um, you're just working on little tiny pieces of huge problems. It's a lot of time in front of a computer. And I, I had farmed, just worked on farms in college as a, I guess, a field hand, really. And it was something that I really enjoyed. And so we were able to buy a piece of land in Wilbraham and um, and turn it into something that now we're able to grow and sell food. And it's amazing when yeah. you know when you can see that sense of accomplishment every you know day yeah. or week or oh, whatever. Oh, it's huge! You have All brought a bag of spinach that you grew <laughs> yeah. in your high tunnels right. on your farm in they Wilbraham. They taste great. You're feeding your community. Yeah, yeah. You're feeding public radio. Yes, That's you right. are. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I don't know if I'm allowed to take uh, bribes in spinach form now that I'm a public <laughs> radio green. host. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of green that I want <laughs> anyway. So you've washed dishes in Antarctica. You went to grad school in Honolulu, you're farming in Wilbraham. 
all that worldly knowledge, how does it translate into your growing practices? I'm not sure that uh, the specific experiences translate into the growing practices, but what we've sort of committed to at our farm is growing completely pesticide-free. So um, we don't use any pesticides, even ones that are approved for organic use, and that's because we want to encourage there to be this whole diverse ecosystem of beneficial insects on our farm. So we have all sorts of things like ladybug larvae and surfid fly larvae that eat insects that would otherwise be pests and keep their populations from getting out of control. So it lets us grow really high quality vegetables without having to spray our crops. I get excited about that. What's a surfid fly? It sounds <laughs> like a um, kind of a thing that you'd learn about in Honolulu uh, on a surfboard. <laughs> yeah, right. They're also called hoverflies. So you might have seen these little things that look like um, bees, but they're not actually bees, they're flies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll just hover seen. over flowers. Yeah, yeah. So those are the adults. The adults eat, um, I think, nectar and pollen, but their, their larvae are they're eating other bugs, especially things like aphids that could otherwise be a problem. Nice. So your pesticide control is other pests. Other pests. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not pests. Other insects. <laughs> yeah. So just so f- folks understand, while you're growing all this amazing food on two acres, that's not sustainable for, the, for you and Brian economically to just live doing that career in farming. So what do you both have to do to enable yourselves to even grow on the two acres so you can feed yourselves? Right. Um, I also do freelance editing work for scientific journals, basically, getting papers ready to print. So that's a way that my grad school education is carried over now. It helps us get through the winter, basically. Um, And Brian also works as an electrician still in the solar industry. So unfortunately not able to make ends meet just with the farming. That's right. That's right. But still doing important work elsewise. Probably fun (laughs) to have your hand in all sorts of different little things. Yeah, we stay busy. Yeah. (laughs) Alice Coleman from Stony Hill Farm on Stony Hill Road in Wilbraham. Farm shares will be coming out soon. The farm stand will be open uh, in the next month or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Phil Corman from CISA, who are the local hero folks. You can find out about many, many different available farm shares throughout our counties here in the 413 at buylocalfood.org. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Later in the show, Amherst College's Dr. Elon Stavans, along with Merriam-Webster and NEPM's own Peter Sokolowski on Dr. Stavans' new book, Chronicling the Changes in American English Through the Centuries. But before that, we'll check in once again with Dave Hayes, the weather nut, to see what's left of this storm. Oh, storm. Got a question for the weather nut? Text us at 800-639-9120. And you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Dave Hayes, the weather nut, is Western Massachusetts' favorite armchair weather forecaster, and he's been up for the better part of two days, keeping his 53,000 Facebook followers up to speed on what the storm has been up to where they live. Dave Hayes, the weather nut, how are you? He is not there yet. So this is what we're calling in live radio land, vamping. (laughs) Well, we can talk about some of the things that are happening, like Mountain Road being closed. Yes. Actually, a lot of things happening in East Hampton, where I was this morning, like trees down on East Street, power lines down on O'Neill and on East Street, mountain roads closed. Like it's there's a lot happening there that's still, I think, being cleared, it sounds like. So problems there. I saw somebody with a snow meter on on a screen earlier. Well, we're hoping to get Dave Hayes back on the show a little bit later. But luckily, we are prepared, I believe, to talk about Elon Stavans and his new book which is called The People's Tongue, 
It is uh, a wonderful book. It's a collection of essays and stories and songs from everybody, from Sojourner Truth to George Carlin, from Abraham Lincoln to Kendrick Lamar, from John Adams to Amy Tan. And it also features NEPM's own Peter Sokolowski, who you might know from jazz here on NEPM, but is also uh, an editor at large. Is that your title, Peter? Yes, indeed. Oh, can we put Peter's mic on there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, editor indeed. at large uh, for <laughs> Merriam-Webster. And joining us on the West Coast, where I believe it is not snowing via Zoom, is Dr. Elon Stabans from Amherst College. Buenos dias, Dr. Stabans. Okay, we don't have that on yet either. I can know you can hear us where we are, but we can't hear you where... You are technology. Failing everyone Yeah, today. well, uh, <laughs> let's start with Peter until we can get Elon on there. Hang on one second. Peter. Uh, Indicative of the day. Yeah, so we're, we uh, are big fans of Merriam-Webster. We've been taking a tour that you'll hear more of tomorrow on the show of oh, the actual building in Springfield. Yes, indeed. Uh, with uh, Emily with Brewster, Emily who is a, a regular guest on the show. And... You have a chapter in the book. What is the chapter in Elon Staban's new collection of essays, The People's Tongue? Yes, The People's Tongue. Well, first of all, Elon and I co-taught a course at Amherst College in the spring of 2020 called The Making of Dictionaries, which, as far as I know, is the first course of its kind ever taught um, on the sort of history of dictionary writing, dictionary making, and very appropriately at Amherst College, a college co-founded by... Noah Webster himself. Right. We learned that when we were at the dictionary. Yeah, with, um, <laughs> with Emily Dickinson's grandfather, among others. And in fact, the basis of the Amherst College Library was, in fact, a, sh- a, sh- a shelf of books that were Noah Webster's own books and, and uh, hand-dedicated by him that you can still see today. So that course was, in, in many ways, the beginning of lots of thinking about organizing uh, writing and thought about dictionaries and collection of all of these different essays from uh, Mencken to Mark Twain and Walt Whitman and uh, and contemporary writers and lexicographers, including Ilan Stavins, his great essay about uh, Spanglish. Um, and so my contribution was sort of the most frequently asked question of a dictionary writer, which is, how does a word get into the dictionary. And we went over this a little bit with Emily Brewster when we were on our tour there, but for those who uh, may have missed that, how does a word get into the dictionary? <laughs> well, we often say there's sort of three different um, three different criteria. A word needs to have long-term use, it needs to have widespread use, and it needs to have meaningful use. In other words, the word has to be used by many people in many publications to mean the same thing. And um, to be honest, that's kind of a low bar. So really what it amounts to for us is a mechanical process uh, to uh, add as many words uh, as we possibly can with, a res- with the responsibility of giving full definitions, complete histories, and phonetics, and all the rest of the factual information that you expect from a dictionary. We called it calling balls and strikes, really. It's not <laughs> making any sort of decision about what is proper English. And that is really the point of Elon Staban's book, The People's Tongue, that there is no one proper English as there is perhaps considered a proper French with the Academy or some <laughs> other uh, versions of, of languages. And hopefully, if technology is in our favor, and if you're, is your laptop muted? Mm-hmm. All right. Is Elon Stabans with us? It feels like a seance whenever we bring over anyone via Zoom. Elon, I see you. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yay! <laughs> We're hearing you in the people's tongue. But now I can't hear you. <laughs> now he can't hear us. <laughs> 
All right, I got an idea here. What if I, what do, if this? I do this? No, because then no, we're going to we go. we hear, <laughs> hear a double man. Oh, my God. Yeah. Live nude radio, everybody. Okay, I got a great idea. On public radio, you only get a one-minute break. Back in the good old days of commercial. You, can you hear us now? No, he still can't hear us. Okay, we're going to take a break. Okay. And then we're going to get either you to call in, Elon, and continue the conversation, or we are just going to um, we'll figure out where the day takes us. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's fabulous about our friends in the 413. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the fabulous 413. We believe now that Dr. Elon Stavans, professor of European, Spanish, Latin American, and Latinx studies at Amherst College is joining us. He's got a fascinating new book out called The People's Tongue. It's an anthology chronicling the history of American English with a series of letters, poems, memoirs, stories, songs, and more from Sojourner Truth to George Carlin, Abraham Lincoln to Kendrick Lamar, and John Adams to Amy Tan. And it also features a chapter from our guest in the studio, Peter Sokolowski, from NEPM and from Merriam-Webster. And Professor Stabans, uh, you are the person who in my life encouraged me to read in English Don Quixote. Uh, you became famous when you decided to translate Don Quixote into Spanglish. And I'm hoping you can read a little bit of that for us from your book this morning. With much, <laughs> with much pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to be able to hear you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so here it goes. Uh, this is the very beginning of the Don Quixote, Chapter 1, Part 1, in Spanglish, the mix of Spanish and English. In un placete de la mancha, of which nombre no quiero remembrarme, vivía not so long ago, uno de esos gentlemen who always tienen una lanza in the rack, una bocler antigua, a skinny caballo, y un greyhound para el chase, a cazuela with más beef than mouton, carne chopeada para la dinner, un omelette para los sábados, lentil para los viernes, y algún pigeon como delicacy especial para los domingos, consumían tres quarters de su income. <laughs> <laughs> Don Quixote, first of all, Classic. I'm so glad you encouraged me to read it in English. Someday I'll know my Spanish well enough to re read it in Spanish. But it was a radio host, really, in Spain who challenged you to do this, right? Can you talk a little bit about that story? Indeed. I was uh, traveling through Spain and was in Barcelona when a member of the Royal Academy of the Spanish language, very stuffy, very serious, protecting, uh, safeguarding the language, it suggested to me that uh, something like Spanglish, spoken by millions of people in the United States, should not be taken seriously until and unless it has the capacity to produce a novel of the depth and complexity of Don Quixote. And so I said, <laughs> all right, let me translate the book. Uh, I'll prove to you that we can have that complexity and depth. And I went back to the hotel Foolishly, but happily translated this, gave it to a friend who passed it on to a newspaper, and uh, I received a lot of death threats, a <laughs> lot of kisses via uh, online, and uh, I'm still alive and happy to be here in your show. Well, and it's really how I got to know of you as my wife was coming to UMass Amherst to study Spanish. There was this controversial figure in the early part of this millennium who was using Spanglish in this way and all these articles coming out. NPR and BBC came to Amherst College to say, why would you do a thing like this? 
And the reason that <laughs> Spanglish was something you wanted to advocate for also has to do with an Amherst College student. You talk about that a little bit in the book as well. Can you say talk about why Spanglish was something that you wanted to put this kind of academic focus on? Because you end up as a teacher, Monte, really learning as much from your students as you hope your students will learn from you. And it, I had a terrific student who was showing me that there were two professors in me in the same body. The one that would come into the classroom with old-fashioned, pure, uh, well-crafted Spanish, and the one that would use Spanglish on the hallways in the cafeteria uh, with the students on campus. And she is the one that encouraged me to stop dividing myself to being hypocritical and bringing Spanish, Spanglish, and English all together into the classroom and do so in a way that would give legitimacy to the journeys that many of the students that I have at Amherst and in many universities have, which is that they come from immigrant parents where the Spanish language and the English language coalesce all the time, sometimes fight, sometimes produce something beautiful. And uh, it was a big lesson. I began studying Spanglish more seriously and uh, have done since then a translation of Alice in Wonderland, The Little Prince, parts of uh, to be or not, the Hamlet, including to be or not to be. And uh, I think that Spanglish is one of the coolest languages in the world. It's funny because for those who don't know your background, Elon Stabans, you are from Mexico originally, but also Jewish and grew up speaking Spanish and Yiddish. And Yiddish in and of itself is, what is it, the, it's the Spanglish of German and, and Hebrew in some ways and other, <laughs> you know, languages have been like this for a very long time. People get right. really angry about the notion of things like Spanglish, but nobody really gets notion uh, angry at the notion of Yiddish at you this point. You have a history of hybrids, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, Yiddish is exactly that, as you were saying. It's a mix of Hebrew, or it was originally a mix of Hebrew and German, and then it added all other kinds of elements from Slavic languages, from French, from English. There was such a thing as Yinglish, the Yiddish that a, a immigrants coming from Eastern Europe were using in this country. The truth is that many languages start as, as a mix, as a, as a fusion. And when we see Spanglish today, we are like the astronomer looking at a new universe that is coming to the fore it is announcing a new civilization, a new way of seeing, of feeling, of eating, of dreaming, of dancing. And it also enables us to see how other galaxies have already taken shape over time. It's interesting like that your journey with Spanglish starts kind of with the code switch. And I'm interested in hearing your, your thoughts on it. I feel like there might be a little bit of a buffer in that. Like Spanglish has a whole other language to to hybrid with, whereas like and I'm thinking about it in, in terms of like my upbringing, like I was in Metco and I definitely understand that like I code switch, like what the way I speak with my family is not how I speak in general company. But I don't there isn't necessarily a break in language in the same way that there kind of is with Spanish. Does that barrier exist as like a buffer with do you feel that it's a buffer with immigrant communities that you have another language to kind of cushion you? Yes, certainly. Uh, 
that was the, the, the Spanglish of the Latino community is a safe space. It is a space for, for that community to feel that it has its own idiosyncrasies, its own rules, its own patterns, and so its, its own rhythms. And at the same time, let's remember that there are many types of Spanglish. There's the Spanglish spoken by Puerto Ricans, both in the island and in the mainland. There's the Spanglish of Mexican-Americans, different in Texas than in California, in New Mexico, in Chicago, in Seattle, in New York. There's the Spanglish of Cuban-Americans called Cubonics and Dominicanish, spoken by Dominican-Americans. Spanglish is such a huge phenomenon that you can cut it into little pieces. There's the Spanglish of the first-generation immigrant and that is different from the second generation. There's the Spanglish that was spoken in the 19th century and a different one that is spoken today. It's incredibly varied, really delicious. <laughs> We're speaking with Elon Stabans, a professor at Amherst College who has a new book out called The People's Tongue. In that book is featured Peter Sokolowski, who you may know here on NEPM as a jazz host, but is also by day an editor at Merriam-Webster. When you look through this book, Peter, uh, people might think that the dictionary should be something that is very critical and judgmental. Ain't, ain't in the dictionary, <laughs> something I it grew sure up is. hearing all the time as a kid, but ain't <laughs> is in the dictionary. And uh, this book that uh, Elon has written and, uh, and collected that you participate in is an argument that there is no one standard American English. What's your take on, uh, on why that is and if that's a, an important way to be looking at American English? Yeah, one of the things I'm so glad that Elon included was the essay by Dwight MacDonald called The String Untuned, which was a criticism of, uh, in fact, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of 1961. And I'll read you, and it, it, it incorporates another figure from the Pioneer Valley. I'll read you just this one sentence. The editor of Webster's Second of 1934, Dr. William A. Nielsen, president of Smith College, followed lexical practice that had obtained since Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson's day, and assumed there was such a thing as correct English and that it was his job to decide what it was. Uh -huh. And I love that uh, Ilan included that essay and that sentence in this because it shows that we are in movement. We are in a constant discussion, a constant argument about what the roles are. I would argue today with our descriptive approach that the authority is now not some you know, old white PhD, you know, in a in literal ivory tower. Uh, but the authority <laughs> is now a kind of shareable and provable fact about language that we can say, this is a word that many thousands of people use to carry this meaning. It has a conventional spelling, it has a con conventional phonetics, and it's not our job to judge the users, it's our job to judge the company that word keeps. In other words, is it archaic? Is it offensive? You know, part of the role of the... And if it's offensive, it doesn't mean it's not going to be in there. Absolutely. It just means it will be chronicled. And that's my point is there are two kinds of facts in the dictionary. And again, Alan's essays kind of all uh, have a conversation about these this tension, which is there is the linguistic fact, which is kind of the shareable, provable fact that I just talked about. We can agree on a, uh, on a, on a conventional spelling of a word. And most of us would say, hey, if you tried to spell it a different way, you're going to be corrected in school for that. That means balls and strikes, right? There's another kind of fact, I think. Not a lexical fact, but a cultural fact. The kind of thing that I would equate with manners. Uh, in other words, uh, what uh, spoon do you use when you first, uh, you know, uh, have, have been... <laughs> I had to learn this on... the hard way at the NEPM Wine and Food Lovers <laughs> uh, Dinner on Saturday in. night. I know, but I knew that. In. I knew that, but, but there's <laughs> other I didn't always know that. There's <laughs> other kinds of manners. There are manners that are more critical to human interactions than which spoon to use, of course. And I think a big part of the dictionary's 
role culturally is to prevent you from embarrassing yourself and from offending others. Mm. And I think that is uh, the cultural role that the dictionary has maybe always played, but never more uh, accurately than today in a, in a time when we're not judging the users, we're judging the words. And again, by the company they keep to give that usage information um, and to place it all in one package, which is the dictionary, a collection of consensus, uh, but also a collection of argument. It's interesting, and we're speaking with Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster and NEPM and Elon Stavans from Amherst College. Noah Webster uh, wanted to change definitions for Americans and change spellings for him. He wanted an American. I would say he succeeded to some extent. Yeah. Color is now not spelled with the letter U. Neither is parlor. Um, is, I guess, Elon, this is a good question for you. The and the, and the book, the, <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry. The book, the, uh, the People's Tongue. This we do have an American identity because of American English and American being used as estadounidenses. We don't have a great word in English, sadly, for what it means to be a U.S. American. Yeah, I think it's it's crucial to remember that any nation that prides itself as uh, an entity and wants to distinguish itself from other nations needs to define certain aspects as unique. we have a flag, we have a national anthem, we have a central bank, we have a post office, we have a government, and we also have our own language. And that means that we might have inherited, as is the case of the United States, from England, but through 450, 475 years of history, that language has been reshaped in order to reflect the parlance of the people in this country. And we are 300 and 30 million people speaking the same language, changing it all the time. I imagine that at this point, American English, I don't imagine, I'm convinced, is far more important globally than British English. It has become the de facto language that people use for business reasons, for sports, for advertising. And what is the American language? It's the language that was English that has become Americanized, for better or worse. And it is now the language of millions of speakers worldwide. Now, I just want to go back very quickly to something all of you were saying. Just the fact that we have Merriam-Webster, not too far from us, in Massachusetts, and our wonderful friend Peter Sokolowski in this show, (laughs) for many of us, is so comforting, so valuable. The very... The very memory of the language that we speak is located right here next to us, and we contribute to it all the time, and we are the ones that shape it. They they are the editors, but we send them new words every time we produce them in order to test them to see what Peter and his (laughs) colleagues are going to be doing. One of my favorite memories of talking with another editor from Merriam-Webster, Emily Brewster, who will again be on the show tomorrow giving us a tour of that very building that you're mentioning there, Elon was the birth via the internet of a word right in front of our very eyes. With the, uh, with the benefit of modern technology, we saw on fleek. Mm. Eyebrows on fleek is something that is said, but we have witness, we believe, of the very first use mm-hmm. of that word. It became very popular. And what, a, what an era we live in where we can see language <laughs> be born like that. And that has become part 
of the vernacular of conversation. Many people, Beautiful. if you don't know what it means right now, it's like your eyebrows look good. Mm-hmm. They're done well. <laughs> they're plucked. They're, they're, they're the right. But it, it was something that, that we watched be born, right? And this is the way that the, what Merriam-Webster is able to do now with American English that then can be translated all across the world. Right. I mean, the, the gold standard is always the printed word, you know, the, because we can say it was printed uh, in a certain place by a certain writer at, at a certain time. And uh, the fact is, informal language for 400 years of English dictionaries, informal language had been the least well represented in dictionaries for the simple fact that uh, most informal language is more spoken than it is written. Uh, and for a long time, of course, newspapers were a very formal kind of language, of, and, and, and that sort of prose has relaxed over the years. But it's not just that. It's that through social media, through texting, uh, through Facebook and Twitter, uh, a lot of our informal language is actually written down now. So that, in fact, sometimes these are informal terms that we see before we hear. We don't even know, is it LOL or LOL? And now we recognize, of course, it's both. Um, is it GIF or JIF? Well, of course, it's both. And uh, Part of that is that we are there, there is a little interference because there's a, there's the spelling influenced pronunciation that comes from seeing the word before you hear it. It used to be everything was spoken. For example, informal words, family words, swear words were spoken, which is one reason why a lot of them had very varying spellings mm-hmm. because we didn't necessarily know how to spell all of those words. Now we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Just like when we're talking about the on fleek thing, yeah. I actually had problems with that piece that you did because of lack of connection to AAVE and how much of an influence that culture and those words are on a lot of the things that end up being Oh, for sure. Po- popularity. But I don't know like that's... With, with that particular word, though, because there was no evidence that anybody had seen, I think, in Merriam-Webster's world, mm-hmm. uh, of at least of recorded evidence, and nobody coming to the defense saying, oh, no, I said this before, to my knowledge. But Yeah, but... Also, that's a, with another piece that we're getting an issue of connection. Like, who has the resources to say I did this first? Right. Or knows that this is the place where you go. Like, this is this is important. I'm seeing this a lot. Yeah. Like, who has access to it is part of the process and part of the evolution of it. I guess. For sure. I think that's that's right. Well, you know, language bubbles up, right? And and it may not be that we can find the first user of any given word, but once it's sort of spread, then we can say, oh, okay, there's something going on here. There's something new. We still don't know the origin of the word jazz. You know, so there are very basic things in the language that are still mysteries to us. And it's amazing because in Ilan Staban's new book, The People's Tongue, he quotes James Baldwin talking about AAVA, African-American Vernacular English, and turning the language into jazz and Mm -hmm. not despising that language. I love this part of the book about what James Baldwin wrote. It's not that we, uh, the white people, despise AAVE, mm-hmm. that they despise what it stands for. They despise the people behind it, which is part of the reason why James Baldwin felt like he needed to leave the land of American English and, and go to France for so long. And much like the point that Ilan was making earlier, like one of his points in that is that everybody that came here, the reason like we have black English as, as like a language is because people came from different tribes. Like nobody knew how to c- communicate with each other. We had to share. English as our language. And it's all English, and it's all chronicled in the book. Elon? Not all of it, <laughs> but a lot that. of it. <laughs> you know, a, a country of immigrants, a country where everybody has some kind of connection to another part of the world, is a country that is always having to renew its language. And just to think for a second, the contributions that Italian has left on the English language, or mm-hmm. Yiddish, or Spanish, or French, or Portuguese, 
it is this it is that richness that results from I just want to switch quickly to something that when Peter and I taught this class together, which was a ball, I don't know, are you, you're going to define the ball now, Peter. I remember you telling me that the word COVID, C-O-V-I-D, we were just at the very beginning of the pandemic, was the fastest in terms of being accepted into the dictionary. That the moment it started to circulate at the end of the of 2019, it the editors caught it, and within two weeks or three weeks, it was already... Can you tell us the story? I remember it very fondly, but not as well. Yes, obviously. I mean, it's a great case study because it's um, a concentrated study, right? Because it was so accelerated. The term COVID-19, it was identified by our science definers who we were, we were all still in the office at the time. They noticed it was bubbling up. As we just said, it was used in all these news sources. And so they drafted a definition. And then we started working, of course, remotely. And it became a, a matter of you know, urgent necessity. And that term was added to our online dictionary at merriamwebster.com in 34 days from its coinage by the World Health Organization, which is far and away the fastest any word has ever entered a Merriam-Webster dictionary. And that also shows something else because we could see online people were searching for it unsuccessfully because the term was not yet entered. And we could see all the pings. And as soon as it went live, uh, we immediately saw a spike. It's the first time we ever saw a word that the moment it went live, it spiked to the top of our lookups because of that moment of real urgent necessity. Not unlike the infections at that time, too, yep. sadly. Oh. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> well, coming up more with Peter Sokolowski from NEPM and from Merriam-Webster and Ilan Stavans, who is from Amherst College, who has a fascinating new book out called The People's Tongue. It's got a lot of pop culture references in there as well, and we're going to get to some of them after a break. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Once upon a time in the woods lived a peasant. He was a good man with a noble heart. He spent his time in the forest coring down bujus from the trees. <laughs> wait, 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 just a minute. What is this bujus? Bujus, right in there. That's Bows. <laughs> B-O-U-G-H is Bow? Right. Bow. <laughs> he spent his time in the forest cutting down boughs from the trees. Cutting wood all day made his hands strong and round. One day... <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> Spelled the same way as the other, O-U-G-H. That's right. That shows how little you know about the English language. So I made a little mistake. Made his hands strong and rough. One day he cut wood so fast that by three o'clock in the afternoon, his day's work was thruff. <laughs> That is a perfect microcosm for what Elon Stavans is talking about in his book, The People's Tongue. And that is uh, quoted in, in the book. It's a lot more fun to hear it, of course, when you hear Lucy and Dizzy yeah. from I Love Lucy doing that. But that is uh, the confusion that uh, Noah Webster was trying to alleviate with American versions of spelling of these complicated English words. And Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster. Uh, joins us as well. That's not the only pop culture that shows up in this book, Elon. Uh, Dr. Seuss, also from Springfield, Massachusetts, and his estate would not let you publish a portion of Green Eggs and Ham that were you were using to demonstrate the beauty of the way the English language has transformed. And you had a very creative workaround. Do you want <laughs> to explain that? <laughs> yeah. I was furious. I think that... <laughs> 
Dr. Seuss is the is the Shakespeare for children in the in American English, and I needed to have him as a pillar of this anthology. And I went to his estate, and they said, no, it's too it's going to cost you too much. I think it was ten thousand dollars to reproduce Green Eggs and Ham. It would have it would have pushed us to bankruptcy. <laughs> and in the end, I just used four lines of Green Eggs and Ham. And getting, I'm hoping to get the reader to say, look, this is great. I'm going to, one, go to the actual book, and two, I'm going to write a letter to the estate and say, <laughs> let them use it. <laughs> well, it's funny because the... the it lo- reads basically like the whole book yeah. <laughs> is you, the funny thing about it. You picked intro lines from different uh, segments or chapters, and then it, but if you string them all together, it is, it is Green Eggs and Ham. And I was like, that was a genius move. I hope that the estate of Dr. Seuss uh, gives our friend Elon Stabans a pass there. But you also talk about um, the importance of the, the language transforming all the way from from John Adams saying that uh, eloquence as advancement is an important part of what we need uh, as as Americans to um, using that elegance in, in the way it's reflected in contemporary culture with rap and Kendrick Lamar, you know, winning the Nobel Prize in literature. And all of that is the beauty of American English, right? The beauty of American English is precisely that. What Peter was saying earlier, there's, a, there's elegance. There used to be elegance, which was snobby and stuffy, and now elegance can come from all walks of life, it can be Bob Dylan, it can be Kendrick Lamar, it could be Zora Neale Hurston, it can be Juan Felipe Herrera. Beauty and elegance are not restricted to the color of your skin or to the school that you, you went to. It is in the versatility, in the capacity to push the language into new levels, into new frontiers. And I think that that is the incredible um, creative talent that this country has. We might be going through a very difficult time in terms of sitting together and ideologically understanding who we are. But ultimately, we're doing it all with the same language, with the, with different accents, with different uh, regional and uh, geographic and national provenances. But ultimately, this is our language. And for better or worse, we do with it as we see fit. And if we want to change the meaning of the word like bad, mm-hmm. it used to be bad and no longer is bad. It's up to us. Nobody's going to tell us not to do it. It's more like the language is a potluck yeah. than something, <laughs> right. something very staid. But you did say about how uh, we, uh, immigrants have brought a lot to American English, but there is also some beautiful stuff about indigenous languages, the, a horrifying right. use of indi- English-only indigenous schools uh, in, a, in a part that uh, Richard Henry Pratt wrote for the book, but the beauty of incorporating indigenous names into English by Simon Pokagon. And talk a little bit about the indigenous influence on American English? That is crucial, Monty. I want to suggest to you and your listeners that any language that we use, any standardized language, is also a a strategy of silencing other voices that have been circulating over time, maybe even a cemetery of terms that didn't quite make it to Merriam-Webster or to the OED. And in the way we communicate today, more than half of the states in the United States have indigenous words as names. Uh, But that means also that many of the languages that uh, were around in this country when the Europeans first settled here have vanished, sadly, 
and we don't have those registers anymore. It is, it is a Darwinian history, the history of any language, the process of trying to survive while competing with others. And we have relics, we have uh, infusions of indigenous terms all over the, our language, in the way we speak, in the way we relate, in the syntax and in the grammar. It strikes me as really significant that very often these days, we start by recognizing that the language we're speaking is, uh, is, is in English, but that is replacing indigenous people. But in the end, it is the language that is making us all come together. Well, I'm pretty excited. On Friday, we're going to have a lesson in the Irish language, which the English the, also tried to eradicate here on the show. Uh. Elon Stavans, <laughs> who's written The People's Tongue, which features a chapter from NEPM and Merriam-Webster's own Peter Sokolowski. Can I just say one thing? Elon doesn't know this. My first jazz radio show was called Green Eggs and Jazz. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I approve. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank Tomorrow you. in the fabulous 413, a look at the digital divide with the NEPM News Department's Nancy Cohen. The digital divide is more than not having access to high-speed internet. It's also about not understanding how to access the internet and the barriers of what you find there. Kalise and I will also see how easy or hard it is to apply for a job online. Uh, plus, Monty and I will be in Berkshire County, and we want to hear from you about your favorite North Adams or Williamstown pizza places for our pizza quest. Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text 800-639-9120. Thanks to our director, Tony, one of the 20,000 without power, done. Our engineer is Betsy, speaking kindly to the haters, Cordis. Our technical team is Cara Cara Foster, Bart, I'm your Huckleberry Rankin, and Punk Rock Dubay. <laughs> Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Suitcase Junket, Dr. Kingonga, Alvarez, Black Francis, and Spanish for Hitchhiking. I'm Khalees Smith. I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. 413.